Pachango. up ladies and gentlemen that sound you just heard has been my ringtone for about five years now if somebody happens to call me and i don't have my uh, notifications turned off which i almost always do but if it gets through that's what comes out of my pocket if you are a fan of steely dan you will recognize that iconic guitar sound the the pluck and hold there uh, from a song called Hey 19, which is one of Steely Dan's many ironic, hyper-intelligent, super slick, amazing tunes that the more you listen to it, the more you'll find within. Steely Dan has been one of my absolute favorite bands forever basically since uh, i was a teenager in high school my best friend well one of my best friends at the time chip kime rest in peace chip um got a dog a black lab and he named it asia after the album asia by steely dan which is certainly one of the finest records ever made on planet earth um, hey 19 is from a different record. It's a song about uh, feeling old in relation to a 19 year old girl. Um, and as you'll hear in this conversation, uh, the two guys who form the heart and soul of Steely Dan were only in their early 30s when they wrote the song. And already they're feeling old. Or at least they're uh, inhabiting the consciousness of someone who does. Who knows, right? When we read a book or, or listen to a song, the, the person who's singing it is assuming a character. It's not necessarily their personal experience. But it's fun. It's it's a funny song because Hey 19, that's Aretha Franklin. She don't remember the Queen of Soul. Uh, he can't relate to this girl because she doesn't know who Aretha Franklin is. And it occurred to me when I was 30, 31, uh, I was in a relationship with a 19-year-old. I don't know if she knew who Aretha Franklin was, but she was Spanish. So, you know, she gets an excuse. Um, but it's a it's an amazing song. If next time you hear it, it's on the radio all the time. Classic rock. Welcome to classic rock. 89.9 FM on your dial. Uh, the, the sort of chorus is the Cuervo gold, the fine Colombian make tonight a wonderful thing. In other words, if I weren't drunk and snorting lines of fine Colombian cocaine, this would not work. The only reason this is working is because I'm so fucking high. <laughs> um, Anyway, that's a long roundabout way to say that this episode of the podcast is very Steely Dan-centric. 
But even if you don't like Steely Dan, even if you don't know who the fuck Steely Dan or what the fuck Steely Dan is, I would encourage you to stick around because the guy I'm talking with, Alex Papadimus, uh, just wrote a book about Steely Dan, but it's more, it's, it's about music. It's about being a musician. It's about fiction. It's about storytelling. It's about so much. Um, the book is called Quantum Criminals, Ramblers, Wild Gamblers, and Other Soul Survivors from the Songs of Steely Dan. I'm told that Steely Dan is uh, experiencing a resurgence, which is really, really interesting. And as we cover in this conversation, it's almost like the world has caught up with Steely Dan. They were ahead of their time, and now the times are kind of... Uh, in a strange sort of Doppler effect sort of way, catching up with some of the sentiments and the techniques and the style that Steely Dan presented. It's an interesting band. I, I've, as I say, I've been a fan forever. And sometimes you'll meet someone. I remember this guy, Phil, that I met in Spain in the early 90s, just before I met the 19-year-old girl, actually. Um Stan was, I mean, um, uh, Phil was British and uh, Steely Dan's not very well known in the UK, apparently, or it wasn't then. And when he heard that I was into Steely Dan, it was like we instantly became bosom buddies. He was so happy to meet someone else who was into Steely Dan. They There aren't casual Steely Dan fans. It seems like you're either really into them because they're so unique there there really aren't other bands like steely dan or you fucking hate them and a lot of people hate them including a lot of people who you know otherwise have pretty good taste um but i think that because they're so slick and the music is so perfect um there's something that some people find inauthentic about the music I'm going to read you a paragraph in which Alex uh, discusses this aspect of Steely Dan. He says, There's one conception of rock music where the recording process is less about capturing the platonic ideal of a song and more about documenting people in a room grappling toward that ideal, even if they can't quite get there. So imagine, this is me now, imagine like a jam session or something like that, or a Grateful Dead, you know, just noodling around trying to figure out what they're doing. That's not Steely Dan. Um, back to Alex. Recording is about catching unplanned moments of vehemence or trance or grace or badassery as they happen to happen. Steely Dan were after the actual ideal and that's part of what their detractors don't like about them. They wanted the songs to sound a certain way and pursued that fidelity at the expense of the spontaneity and friction essential to the part of rock and roll that's derived from rock and roll, producing spotless recordings conveying no sense of musicians tumbling down the same hill together or breathing each other's smoke and funk in enclosed spaces. So that'll give you a sense of 
how people feel about Steely Dan. And it also gives you a sense of what an awesome fucking writer this guy is. It's so much fun to read his prose. It's really lively and surprising and funny and charming and just fucking awesome. So as someone who has struggled to produce writing that was fun to read, I really appreciate it when I find it. And this book is full of it. The book is Quantum Criminals. The author is Alex Papademus. And because this is audio, you can't see this. Um, But the book is full of really cool um, illustrations as well by Joan LeMay. Um, Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting the way they organize the book too, because it's not a book about, well, okay, here are 12 songs by Steely Dan we're going to talk about. It's here are characters described in songs. And sometimes it's just a character that's just mentioned in passing, but it turns out it's a real person. And so Alex has done the research to figure out who this person was. Who are they referring to? A song many people have heard, I think everyone's heard, but you might not remember you've heard it. It's called Ricky Don't Lose That Number. That was one of their big, big hits in the 70s. Turns out there is a Ricky. There's a person who inspired that song. And uh, (laughs) she was traveling around the world hearing that song all over the place. And I I guess it was kind of annoying for her. Um, Anyway, so before we get to this conversation, this is another commercial-free episode of Tangentially Speaking, as pretty much all of them are. But I do want to... I don't know if these count as commercials or not, but I want to remind you of a few things. One of which is I still have that Amazon affiliate link. So if you spend money on Amazon, please consider going to thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com or chrisryanphd.com. It's all the same place. Uh, And clicking on the Amazon affiliate link that you will see there and then bookmark that as your Amazon site. And when you do that, uh, anywhere from 3 to 8% of what you spend will kick back to support the podcast uh, at no additional cost to you. It just takes the money away from Jeff Bezos. Is it Bezos or Bezos? Whatever. That bald-headed billionaire bastard who's taking all the money in the world and building rocket ships and uh, I don't know what the fuck else he's doing but he doesn't need any more money that's the point so if you could take some money from Jeff billionaire Bezos and give it to Chris podcaster Ryan wouldn't you do that at no cost to yourself just a couple of clicks well here's your chance And also for the next month, apparently, the reason I'm mentioning this is Amazon sent me something saying, we're increasing your percentages for a month. I think it's to spur me to do what I'm doing right now, which is to remember to tell you about it. So there's that. Another thing uh, to mention is, uh, as always, Substack, baby. Substack is where it's at. Substack is doing something very different with media. They're setting people up direct with their listeners, readers, 
And uh, they're doing it in a very fair, reasonable, cool way. They take 10% and the rest goes to the producer. That would be me. Um, so if you subscribe to my Substack page at chrisryan.substack.com, you will have access to bonus material. For example, there will be a video of Alex and me having this conversation that will be sent out. A link to that will be sent out to paying subscribers. So if you prefer to watch us or you just want to see what Alex looks like or you want to check out the room Alex and or I are sitting in, there's your chance. That's what your five bucks a month gets you. One of many things. And I also want to tell you that the um, the retreat, the Sex at Dawn retreat that's happening August 20th to 25th, I believe, in uh, near Whitefish, Montana, is getting a lot of... Um, a lot of people are sending in their applications. So if, and when I say applications, what I'm saying is we, we try, there are more people who want to do this than there are spots. So um, what we try to do is pick people who are going to have a good time with each other. Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting process, but uh, we won't be making any decisions for a couple of weeks. So if you're interested in doing this, um, you can find all sorts of information about it at my, at the episode description for this particular episode. Um, so go to Chris Ryan, substack.com and, uh, you'll see a link there and you can go check it out. So it's going to be Anya and me, uh, Anya's going to be doing some dance and, and movement stuff. I'll be talking about, prehistory and uh, sexuality and uh, Cameron and Melaine Shane, who are awesome martial arts, yoga, dance, fucking awesome people. Um, they're going to be leading workshops. So it's going to be very sort of mind body. Everything's involved. We're all going to be talking about sort of uh, unconventional relationships and sexuality and movement and embodiment and the food is awesome most of it's grown right there on the property um, and uh, it's a really beautiful place so if you've got some time in august and you want to meet some cool people and do some cool shit please consider it uh, you can find out more at my substack chrisryan.substack.com I'm sure there are a million other things I'm supposed to be mentioning to you, but I think I'm going to leave it at that. As always, you'll notice there's no mid-roll ads. I might say something at the end, try to keep most of it here at the beginning. Um, but once we get into the conversation, I just like to let it flow. So thank you for listening to the podcast. I'm going to turn it over now to uh, Alex and a former me from about a week ago. I hope things are going well for you out there. Much peace and love to everyone. I got to start out by saying a few things. Number one, I feel like my entire post-adolescent life has been leading to this moment. <laughs> me too. Go ahead. <laughs> this is, I mean, a couple of, of you know, middle-aged, or in my case, post-middle-aged, 
white dudes talking about Steely Dan <laughs> in our T-shirts, non-Steely Dan T-shirts. Um, I have loved Steely Dan, as I know you have, since pubic hair, basically. Um, well, listen, there are a couple of excerpts that I wanted to read as we go through this conversation. I don't know if you have a book right in front of you and you can read them or I could just oh, read yeah. them. Yeah, I got a box of them. What do you, you want me to do it? I'll do it. Um, I got to practice for the book tour. Here we go. Okay. So on, on pages 16 and 17, I underlined uh, a passage that's that's sort of uh, separated, but I, I underlined. So it starts out, but sure as the Cuervo gold leads to the fine Colombian, getting into Steely Dan, ironically, is the gateway drug to appreciating them sincerely. I thought that was so well said. And then on page 17, maybe you can just read second paragraph beginning. That's how it works. Um, sure. That's how it works. You show up expecting to appreciate them as kitsch or to find out what the memes are all about. But before too long, if you have any feeling for craftsmanship at all, you'll start to savor the way the music's individual elements click into place. And the way the content cuts against those tasteful settings, like the phrase bleeding ulcer written in Coca-Cola cursive on a red background. Even if you know nothing about them, you begin to sense Donald and Walter's presence in the music, free-floating intellects welcoming you in without letting on that they're glad you're here, winking behind their shades. Man, that's so good. You're, you're I mean, Thank I you. don't need to tell you this, but as a writer, when I read somebody who's got it, it just gives me goosebumps. I, I fucking, I, there were so many moments like that in this book where I was just like, fuck, dude, that's so perfectly <laughs> said. As a writer, you should know that I, you do need to tell me that, that I need to hear that like about <laughs> five times a day. And that I'm too, yeah, like uh, I absolutely do. But thank you. That's really, no. that's really nice of you. Like, uh, yeah, but you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you know that feeling, right? Where you go. And when you get that, when that, drops yep. into your head i know you recognize the feeling you know it's just awesome no totally and it's interesting too because this is you know this is the longest i mean i wrote i wrote one book before this and but like these two things are the longest things i've ever written and you know i'm accustomed to writing really short and i started out writing like record reviews that are like 100 words long and you feel like you have to do that in every sentence or i did like mm. every single thing has to be it's like Mario Brothers, where there has to be a coin inside of every brick that you can hit with your head or something. And gradual, one of the best pieces of advice that I got from somebody who'd written more books than me, uh, as I was sort of you know despairing on how to do this, was that you don't have to. You can have that one of those in every paragraph. It doesn't have to be in like every sentence. Like not everything has to be. You know, it has to have that. You know, that bling to it. You know, like you can sort of space them out a little more. Like it's sort of it's an impossible test to put yourself through to have like every line sort of you know be one of those like one of those zingers. But you feel the pressure to do it if you're accustomed to working really short, as I am. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and I think it it could even be counterproductive because if you do it too much, it starts to seem like advertising copy. Right. It's it's too dense, um, and I yeah. think the reader does need need the sort of change in in you know like some meals need to have some brown rice 
you know it can't be all <laughs> sauce all the time you know <laughs> yeah but like when you only have like a tiny little space to do that like you become like somebody who's like i'm gonna sauce the hell out of this because this is so, you know somebody's reading 150 words on on this record and like i am you know they're gonna see my byline at the end of it that's you know that's kind of like how I learned to, to write and how I learned to write funny and how I learned to be interesting was that like working within that incredibly tiny little space. And it's, in, it's weird to be like, Oh, you can kind of, yeah, you can br- let this breathe. And like this sentence can just be factual and get you to the next sentence. And then, you know, at some point again, you can hit a tasty lick, but it's not every single yeah. bar, you know, yeah. to yeah. use the, the session dude <laughs> vernacular. I guess. Right. And, and there, there are so many lines in the book and I, I do this too, when I, I've written books where I'm they're inside jokes and there are phrases that, that you throw in there that, that, you know, most of the people reading the book aren't going to get. Although in this case, I wonder if most of the people reading the book will be Steely Dan fans. I mean, presumably that's the market segment that you're aiming for but i hope a lot of people who aren't necessarily steely dan fans will read the book um that's why i wanted to open with that particular passage because a lot of people have a misconception of what kind of band they were mm-hmm. a misunderstanding of the music they just hear like smooth you know 70s elevator kind of shit and they don't understand the artistry and and as you say when when you savor the way the music's individual elements click into place, if you have any sense of craftsmanship, I, I think a lot of people would benefit by giving giving this book a read and giving Steely Dan another listen in light of the things that you highlight in the book. I mean, that would be cool. I, I, I you know, obviously, like the, the people who are the most stoked for this are people who've been waiting for it their whole lives, whether they know it or not. Right. Like those the, the, the Dan fans are, are yes, like the, that's the backbone of, uh, you know, the, the, the base for this book. But, you know, we wanted it to be something where you could pick it up and kind of, you know, if you wanted to start or if you were curious about them based on kind of their growing sort of social media profile and all of that, like you could this is a, this is a way in. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I will say like, you know, like really grateful to uh, the University of Texas Press and all the people who worked on this book for like not forcing us to make it into a primer. But like, I hope mm. that it functions that way at the same time. Like we very much got to write a book that under I think in, you know, so that some some people would probably look at it and be like, this isn't, you know, letting people in enough. But I feel like it does. I feel like it's a little bit, you know, when I look at it, I feel like it's kind of like, it's like a child's garden of Steely Dan somehow. Like it's like sort of, I feel like it does kind of. And I think part of that is also that it's, that it's visual and that it has like this, you know, sort of like Joan LeMay's brilliant art in this book. Like I think it's really sort of like, yeah, I I think it, I think it brings this stuff to life, uh, you know, and kind of gives it a personality, uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that I try to give it to, but I think it, you know, works on two levels because of that. Yeah. I I think her art is, is perfectly suited to the book because when I look at the art, I see, I see great craftsmanship, obviously. Uh, but I also see a wry sense of humor. Yeah. Both, both like, did she choose which characters to depict or did you choose them and, and ask her to imagine them? How did that work? Um, this was like the initial idea for this project was Jones. Basically, she was going to do a zine where she uh, drew all of these characters. I don't think it was going to be painted. It was going to she was going to do like sketches. And so she sort of announced this 
on social media. And meanwhile, I had sent, I had been talking to UT. I've been talking to my friend Jessica Hopper at UT. She had given me the opportunity to uh, do a music book. She was like, what music book could you do uh, You know, for this American music series? Like, who would you want to write about? And I was like down the road, I had a proposal that was kind of taking shape. And then uh, Joan, who is a mutual friend, a friend, uh, sort of a, a, a professional acquaintance of mine from, from way back and a longtime friend of Jessica's, sort of announced on social media that she wanted to make this danzine and immediately was like, Jessica emailed her like, no, jo like Joni, this is not, you know, this, this is a, this is a book. Right. And so it became like this, I kind of reorganized my thinking around the idea of the characters because that was just such an incredible rubric and such a cool way into this. And I'd never seen anybody really do that with any band like Steely Dan yeah. or otherwise. And so it kind of came together based on that and then we sort of went back and forth like Joan made this spreadsheet of like of everybody like all of the sort of like the minor characters and like there's some you know sort of later songs that mention like you know like eight to ten names and so there was way more that we could have done um, but we sort of talked it out based on like you know who I had kind of you know some, something to you know something to say that I could hang on these you know the, these people and you know the sort of like the characters that joan was keen to draw and so it's like it you know came together that way but yeah it's way funnier than i imagined it being like there's mm. a there's like a wit and a there's a sense that there is like I, you've identified this sense of humor and i think that's that's what i like about it like there's a you know because that's so important to steely dan to me the fact that they're the fact that they're funnier than i will ever be you know i think that was a point <laughs> that i got to in like the writing process at one point, it was not a literal post-it, but it was like a post-it to myself. Like, don't try to be funnier than Donald and Walter because you can't do it. Yeah, but their humor is so, um, it's so guarded, you know, it's so dry. You know, Absolutely. I, I um, we were, we were conversing uh, by Twitter DM and at one point you were like, okay, so we're on for, for 11 o'clock Wednesday. And I'm like, yeah. And so I got it into my head that we were doing this at 11 o'clock, but I'm in the Rocky Mountains, so it's an hour different. Wow. So I sat down to do this at 11 and, and, and my partner was like, dude, it says 12 on the calendar. And it's like, oh, shit. So I had an hour. And, and in that hour, I went back and I watched um, Steely Dan taxi cab confession thing that you mentioned in the book. I'd never <laughs> yes. seen that. <laughs> and I mean, that's like a great insight into their humor. They're so funny but so droll, you know, it's just, I mean, it, you, you're, it's, it's great that they did not have to live in the world where musicians have to make TikToks and stuff in order to survive. But imagine those TikToks. imagine how great that would be. <laughs> like if they were living, if they were alive today and using the sort of mechanisms that are available to musicians, I mean, like you just go back and look at like, uh, you know, the the art and it's still archived you can find it like their old website like back when people had like really sort of you know rich and dense websites that they would make you know artists and things like that all of the open letters that they wrote to like wes anderson and people like that mm. over the years like they're so funny and there was something about you know i, I think they just had a lot of time on their hands <laughs> if, you know weird. not touring and just kind of hanging yeah. out and it's just i mean you know like we have we have a bunch of that stuff because we have Donald's book, which is a lot of his, you know, a lot of his writing and a lot of his writing for like premier magazine and stuff like mm. collected in one place. But 
I just think like every, you know, they were, they were so good at, you know, in, in a way that's kind of infuriating because it wasn't even the thing that they really did for a living. It wasn't the thing they were best at. And then like, they were really good at it, like prose writing. Right. So uh, yeah, the, yeah, I mean, I just, you, uh, yeah. you quote from some of the album covers too, the, you know, the, the biographical tongue in cheek mm-hmm. information and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, talking about humor. Here's another section. <clears throat> I'll just read this, but I thought this was, this made me laugh out loud. This is from uh, the Major Dudes chapter. I mean, you knew you were having fun with this. The narrator (laughs) of any Major Dude will tell you is telling you he's a Major Dude himself without coming out and saying it because a Major Dude is cool and cool don't advertise. Anyway, his specific dudedom is not the issue. The point is that he's telling you things any Major Dude would tell you, things a Major Dude understands about the world and the nature of his and others' places in it. Don't take his word for it. These truths are noble, universal, dude evidence. <laughs> dude evidence. Fact check uh, them with another dude. With any dude. <laughs> You'll see. That's so good. Dude evident, man. I wanna I wanna like hold yeah. that and pull it out at just the right moment. It's dude evident. It's just dude. Yeah, it's like not don't take it for don't take my word for it. Like any major, ask, go out, find a major dude that you trust about this. (laughs) I mean, I love that song because, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, sort of parodies of this kind of music because there's a lot of that around, you know, Steely Dan parodies and Yacht Rock parodies and everything. And what I think is amazing about Steely Dan is that that song is like, is already a Yacht Rock parody. And it's ahead of like most of what we talk about as yacht rock like before even that stuff came out like so much of what we think of under the sort of genre tag of yacht rock is basically any major dude will tell you uh played for like not ironically played sincerely and you know like for feels and i think that that's amazing i think that they were, they pre-parodied all of these things that would follow in their wake well but i mean I, that's to me that's the beauty of steely dan that they are both sincere and tongue-in-cheek at the same time i mean i hear that song any major dude and i hear somebody's going through a crisis the friend is saying hey man it'll get better you know the demon is at your door in the morning it won't be there no more you're gonna get through this it's like the most heartfelt compassionate message yeah and yet as you say there's also a perspective from which it's all kind of funny. I mean, the Rolling Stones do this as well, like emotional rescue, you know, mm-hmm. I'll be your knight in shining armor coming to you in a fine Arab charger, you know, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? It's making right. fun. You of cannot disco. be serious. Yeah. yeah. And well, yet, it's, but it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's the, yeah, this is their, let it, it's yeah, this is their, it's their, let it be, you know? And, and, and so Steely Dan's let it be would have, there's a, you know, they're going to be a Seuss Hall of uh, sarcasm in there. But like, I yeah. think that there's also, you can kind of dial into, you know, what is real about it. I mean, I find like, you know, I sort of make this assertion in the book, uh, you know, that the song Gaucho, the title song from the Gaucho album might actually be sort of one of the rare instances where you can hear Donald and Walter communicating with one another. Like that it's sort of, that it's always sounded to me like Donald singing to Walter as this band Mm. is kind of starting to fray and everything. And 
like I really I I believe that that's the case, but it's also wrapped in this like crazy gay fantasia of this you know set in the an imaginary uh, stadium called the Custer Dome, and like there's all these descriptions of the gaucho in this outlandish uh, you know vestments and everything. It's like it's sort of it's it everything is kind of you know it's it's wrapped inside of a joke, but yeah, I don't know. I guess I sort of it's like it reminds me of a lot of the indie rock music that I grew up listening to before I got into Steely Dan, where it was always this balance of sincerity and sarcasm in something like Pavement. And like you could get into the sort of the sincerity of the delivery and there was something emotional in what was going on. But these were also smart, guarded people who felt weird about putting themselves forward as nakedly as some people might. Right. They seem to me to be a harbinger and and you get into this in the book you talk about how they describe a world of alienation and impending disaster and and all this kind of um thing and you you make the point quite explicitly that that the world is more steely dan now than it was when they were writing these songs and a lot of the songs are are almost a warning of what's to come i also see them as them themselves are characters um you know they're they're way older than hipsters but they're kind of er hipster in a way that that sort of detached irony it's like i lived in portland for a while every fucking barista in portland is like walter becker you know it's like i know (laughs) better than you i'm smarter than you i'm cooler than you i've got better taste than you um and yet i feel inferior to you and that enrages me well, it wasn't, it's like, you know, I think if you're alive today, it's hard to conceive of a time when irony was not sort of just kind of airborne, like it was not mm-hmm. the way that people expressed themselves. But it's like, there were like moments when that sort of started to when that changed and when that became a part of like what was going on in pop culture, like, the, and you know, Steely Dan predate like, late night with david letterman and i think that's like one of the ways that that sort of filters in and you know everything that sort of happens like you know with with sort of gen x culture bringing you know irony as like a mode of self-expression into you know just the way that you know people communicate with one another and now i think like you know the the levels on which like the average sort of you know social media conversation works you know, uh, the levels of irony that that works on and the ways in which like you couldn't, you can't really explain that. Like it's sort of, it's just, it's second nature to people sort of coming of age on the internet, but it was not in any way the way that like, you know, pop culture talked to you, the way that TV talked to you in 1975, right. you know? And so I think, yeah, they're absolutely ahead of so many games in, in, in that way. Do you think the... I mean, Steely Dan are, are famous for the their attention to detail and perfectionism, and you know, two hundred and fifty takes of uh, uh, what, what's the the Odyssey song, "Home at Last." You you talk yeah, about of the words, "Well, the yeah, exactly." Danger on the rocks yeah. is surely past. Just those, just those two words, over and over. Well, and he over. nailed it. I don't know what the other two hundred forty nine yeah. takes <laughs> sounded like, but two hundred fifty, he got it. Um. Do you think that they applied anything like that same level of obsessiveness to lyrics? I'm sure that they did, but I, you know, that they sweated over it and I'm sure that they, you know, they also, I think 
you know, kind of, you know, never threw anything away. Like if you go back to those Brill building demos, you can hear lines like that echo down through the years that they found it finally found a place for later mm-hmm. on, like songs that never came out. But then like you'll hear a reference to like, you know, we'll get out the Hooters in the hats or something. And then that shows up on Josie years and years later on on Asia. So they they were definitely thinking about it. You know, but it's also, I think, you know, the most important thing is that they were, you know, they were collaborators. And so they were trying to please each other first with lyrics. And so I think that like, that was probably the the standard that they applied to that, I think was probably their own, like, did it make us laugh? Whereas like, there's something else going on with the, you know, with the performances and like the, you know, but the perfectionism with the performances is, I think, uh, ultimately about like yes it's about tightness and it's about the rhythm section being like rock solid and like that was always the thing they were trying to get and like they were sort of you know they would say basically we're just trying to get to the place where your average r&b band is in terms of tightness but i think they were they were going for like you know with solos and things like that they were going for like a level of emotionality that like they would know when they heard it you know so i think that's like you know the perfectionism is ultimately about like what's the best possible thing that could happen in this space where the guitar solo or the sax solo is supposed to happen like and you know that's the so it's about it's about getting it right but i think it's also about in the same way that you know a like a director will make you do 50 takes of something of of your big scene like when it's time to really sort of like deliver the big monologue or something like that and like we don't you know nobody nobody really questions that in in film unless it gets Mm. to like a sort of a stanley kubrick david fincher kind of level where people joke about it but you know that's the like, you know, they know what they want. And like, that's sort of, sort of like, you know, the why can't, why, why not do that in music? You didn't ask me to defend it, but I just defended it, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's an interesting insight. I, I, I feel like there's a, a, a level of playfulness and like, uh, just sort of who gives a shit in their lyrics that I don't hear any trace of in the music. And in fact, I was, you know, I went to college uh, 1980 to 84, right? And I think about walking around, you know, through walking around the dorms and hearing the music people were playing. And I can think, I can sort of identify three major schools at this point. By the way, I I almost went to Bard College. That's... Be- is it because of steely dan you try to like follow in their foot or just just no it just happened that way no it just it was one of the you know that kind of like overpriced liberal arts they'll probably right. let me in schools you know in yeah. uh upstate new york but anyway there was like there was the reggae crowd there mm-hmm. was the the grateful dead crowd and there was the steely dan crowd and wow, it occurs to me that Steely Dan is the anti-Grateful Dead. If is if there's a spectrum of like, you know, sloppy to tight, Grateful Dead is on one end and Steely Dan's on the other end. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there are um, no Steely Robert, Dan bootlegs that people were playing, you know, like, why would you? No, although, I mean, I did listen to a lot of, there are some, there, like, it's on YouTube, there are, from before, from before they stopped touring, like, there is somewhat of a corpus of uh, bootlegs of that band, and it's an incredible band, they sound really good live, like, they sort of, like, Donald and Walter would tell you in interviews, and, you know, have that, like, they, they weren't getting what they wanted on stage, and they couldn't hear themselves, and all that, and it just wasn't up to their standards, which it maybe wasn't, but 
there's a really interesting parallel universe where they kept doing that because if you listen to them playing Bodhisattva every night in 1974 or whatever, it's you know there's there's a lot going on there, and it's an exciting band to listen to and to think about. But yeah, I mean uh, Robert Criscow called them the Grateful Dead of bad vibes, uh, oh, right. <laughs> which I really like. <laughs> Uh, and and yeah, it's like because it, like the it, they are the anti Grateful Dead in the it's sort of like you know the the sort of evil version of the Grateful Dead would be obsessed with telling people what to play instead of just letting everybody kind of find it in the moment. But it's interesting to hear that like the reggae crowd and the Grateful Dead crowd that there were two separate crowds at that time mm. because like by like 1995, uh, I'm in college like that. Th- those two strains had entirely merged. There is no Steely Dan crowd. And it's like, there was basically, it's like, there's the, you know, I think it was, you know, I don't know. It's probably like the Alanis crowd, the Wu-Tang crowd and the reggae crowd. And, mm. you know, the, or, but like all of that kind of goes together. Um, but yeah, it's funny to imagine there being a Steely Dan crowd. Cause I think a lot of where I'm coming from with this is, you know, it, kind of getting into them at a moment when it seemed like nobody really liked them that mm. much, which I kind of feel like is a historical blip of just a, it's a, a kind of a quirk of my age, you know, that I grew yeah. up kind of thinking, Oh, this is like, we sort of alluded to earlier. Like this is some smooth jazz bullshit and uh, you know, th- that's not for me and all of that. And then kind of getting into it and being like, Hey, okay. Uh, there's some amazing uh, lyrical play going on on top of the smooth jazz bullshit, but also I kind of like the smooth jazz bullshit. The more that I listen to it, like it's sort of it's that it's that thing of being of being pulled in. Like you get into it thinking, you know, oh, this is I'd isn't it? Wouldn't it be hilarious if I listened to Steely Dan today as a young person, and then suddenly you're like, wait a minute, I really like Steely Dan. I really relate to Steely, Dan. and you know that's how you yeah. end up writing a book. Do you think we were talking about Steely Dan, Walter and Donald as being sort of um, <clears throat> models of, of, or, or communicating feelings and perspectives that were coming down the line. Is there also, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a, a cruel way, but are they also kind of a harbinger of the whole incel Andrew Tate kind of scene? Because there is a, as you point out, there is some confusion and hostility uh, around women uh, yeah. in a lot of their songs. They it, and to me, they don't come across as as misogynistic. They come across as nerdy fourteen year olds who don't understand how to relate to women and never quite figured it out. Never never really got beyond that despite the success and the money and and whatever came their way. They do seem like a voice, like the song Josie, which you did a very short, a brief chapter on that song to me has always sort of been an anthem of the teenage boy, horny teenage boys singing about this girl. Who's a couple of years older who went off to college or as you say, Hollywood or reform school or who knows where she went. But yeah. she's sexy as fuck. And when she comes home, everyone's like, uh, she and and also praise like a Roman with her eyes on fire. To me, that's about blowjobs. You know, that's the most logical explanation I've ever heard for that song. It makes total sense. I like, and I've never I've never thought that before. But she's you're so you're good. At, like she's the yeah, pride I mean, of that's... the neighborhood, and then she's so bad, she's the best thing we never had. I mean. The wild yeah. eyes, the whole thing. 
I mean, look, these are sort of the, the you know, they, these are boomer men. I don't know. This is your generation. This is how we talk, how they talk about shit like this, uh, you know. But yeah, you're right. There's a thread that runs very much from from reeling in the years through Hey 19 of, uh, you know, there is a little bit. It's not, it, you know, it's a little bit condescending. It's a little bit of, you know, it's that like. But I think it's that kind of normal level of misogyny that you would get from your kind of your heroes, from your Holden Caulfields and the people like that. Like some of the, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here that doesn't hold up to the test of time and the shifting, you know, kind of sensibilities about the way that, you know, the way that people talk about things. Um, and, you know, I've tried to sort I try to talk about it in the book without, you know, sort of going back and convicting anybody of, you know, things that they sort of the ways ways that they express themselves you know 20 30 years ago because i don't think that it's i mean now so yeah now it's not like i'm qualifying and like splitting hairs about it you know about their sort of you know because i do think that there's there's an element of like giving women a hard time for their choices that like these songs kind of you know resound but at the same time i think like you know they are not always i think it's a mistake to assume that even a steely dance song that's written in the first person is expressive of their own perspective and i think they're right. often writing in character and they're often writing in you know in characters who are not necessarily supposed to be right yeah. about what they're saying yeah yeah that's that's true and and i i do want to say like you know as i said I, I wasn't coming from a place of hostility i think that what they're expressing is felt by many many guys um, yeah. And it's not anti-woman. It's more like it, it's it's self-deprecating in the sense of why can't I figure this out? You know, the, the things you right. think are precious, I can't understand. I mean, the way that's yeah. phrased is not like your values are fucked up. It's saying the things you value, I can't understand. I can't wrap my head around what it's like to be a woman and why you chose him over me. You know, I mean, it comes right. down to that so often. Yeah. And Hey 19 is about the feeling of being, you know, the like the age gap there. I mean, they wrote that when they were basically 30, both of them. And it's about sort of like not being able to bridge a 10 year age gap because like you are that in, you know, in 70s years, that's like an incredible sort of gulf of time. <laughs> it's just like and it's literally it's not, you know, it's like we no longer share, you know, sort of a culture anymore because we were that because that, you know, that that amount of time, that's an eternity. I mean, yeah, they voice a lot of things that are facts of ways that people think and ways that people feel that are maybe unsavory and unpleasant that don't, I think, make it into songs that often and, mm. you know, things that like, but that are, that are real feelings that, that people have. And I, and, and I think that, you know, they're, they're wrestling with those things. And I feel like that's what, you know, art is supposed to do, obviously. I mean, the most, like the, the I think the best example is the, no, there's a number of Steely Dan songs that are, you know, in so many words about uh, white people who wish they were black. Mm. And like, that is, you know, it's a sort of, that is an incredibly loaded and, you know, thing to talk about and thing to think about. And the, you know, there's like, all of you know, there's a, you know literature has tried to address it in various ways over the years it's weird to sort of of it to be in a position of power based on your race and be in a position of privilege and sort of covet something else 
you know, and like across, a, you know, a cultural line that it often becomes like a class line and all of those things. And it's like, it's incredibly un-PC to voice that sentiment in those terms. And yet people really do want that. And people really do feel that way. And there are people right. out there who feel like the guy from Deacon Blues or the guy from Midnight Cruiser, who's sort of like, I, you know, I feel like this on the inside like, why can't, why am I not as, you know, why am I not able to, you know, to like to live in your world in the, in this, in the same way. And like, it's can come off as obnoxious, but at the same time, like it's a real thing. And they're not necessarily, I think they're not so much valorizing it as just saying like, this is something that people struggle with. And they're, you know, like yeah. they're actually, and there aren't that many songs about that pretty huge aspect of the American experience huge. and i find yeah. that yeah it's like it's a defining thing that sort of has you know it's like it's one of the sort of animating tensions of you know popular culture and the culture in general and like they were on this like in the 70s you know like before like anybody when when it when you know that stuff was just so unexamined if it was if it existed at all it's like you know i write this in the book but like you know, mick jagger wasn't losing any sleep about that and he wasn't wrestling with that question of what it means, you know, to be sort of, you know, to kind of identify in that way, you know, with sort of, you know, with oppressed people when you yourself are not oppressed and like what that, you know, sort of what that means. And, you know, I, I think that that's, I think that's fascinating. I mean, and, you know, and, and at the same time, like, yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, they, they, they knew what they were doing, I think, more than they sometimes get credit for when mm -hmm. they sort of address these things. Like they knew, right. I think they knew what they were getting into and they knew that they were getting into uncomfortable territory and things that were uncomfortable territory back when there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a lot of thought, you know, I talk about Kerouac in the book and like the sort of like the beats and like that nobody really at the time it was like, you know, but every, like if you, there's a lot of weird stuff in those books, stuff that hits you, hits the ear kind of weird these days. If you go back to Kerouac, you go back to Norman Mailer and people mm. like that. You know, but like nobody was examining that, like what, you know, what, like they were just like, oh, good for these white guys who are, you know, sort of like want to forsake their privilege or whatever. It's, you know, so I found that I found that interesting that, you know, to kind of follow that thread through the Dan history. Yeah, there's something deeply um, unconcerned with political correctness, even though, <clears throat> as you point out, political correctness didn't really exist as a concept um, at that point. But there is something I forget what he's referring to, but I think you're quoting Donald. He says something about maybe it's in an interview about this kind of thing. And he says, like, well, fortunately, I don't give a shit about that stuff, you know, and it's just like, right. so so that's one concern I don't have to have. Are there any Steely Dan love songs? I mean, I think Home at Last is there. And I think Home at Last really gets at I think that's a song, you know, it's a like it's again, it's draped in a kind of, you know, in a metaphor because it's the odyssey he's talking about being you know sort of about odysseus tied to the mast so that he can hear the siren song but he can't you know sort of and like he's told his crew not to rescue him no matter what you know and not to let him off the boat and everything there's something about that about sort of it's it's as close to, i feel like that might be as close to a love song as they ever came because it's like well i, I guess i guess companionate coupledom is okay like shrug you know, that's about yeah. how far, how close they got to it. I mean, Rose Darling, I think, from Katie Lied is something. It's again, it's very sort of, it's a lot. I feel like that's their most Dylan-esque kind of like, you know, mm. can you please crawl out your window kind of song. But there's something about, you know, they're sort of, that whatever they're saying to, to Rose Darling. You know, and I think weirdly, like, 
whether you think it's about love or not, I think that the song Gaucho from Gaucho is, uh, you know, that's about a partnership. That's about sort of mm. two people like, you know, that's, it's, you know, that's, but that's one of many kind of dysfunctional love songs where there is a, you know, a third party that has disrupted the bond between two people. And I think that's always happening in Steely Dan songs. You can always, you can look to, you know, anything from like, you know, through with buzz, Jack of speed, all of those things. Like the more I started like writing down, like those examples of that, like the more it came up yeah. and it's often the third person is a metaphor for drugs or it's a, you know, it's usually a metaphor for drugs. I was going to say, or it's, well, it's usually drugs. And what drugs you, you, you mentioned drugs a lot in the book, but you never specify yeah. I assume we're talking about cocaine and heroin in the case of, of Walter. Yeah. I mean, I think Walter's thing was probably was, was opiates. Ultimately, I think obviously like this is written, a, this book is written in a moment when, you know, cocaine was just kind of out there. It was just kind of hanging out. I mean, not that it's, you know, I feel like every moment since it was, you know, first, you know, isolated into powder form, it has kind of hasn't gone anywhere, but, yeah, I think there's a, I think that this is, you know, I think a lot of these songs are about sort of watching the casualties mount up from this moment where it's like, oh yeah, drug, it's, you know, drugs are not only are they okay, it's, the, you know, the, this is going to become a thing that we all do socially. And, you know, the, the, the toll is starting to is be taken at this point. And I think they're probably watching a lot of that happen as they're writing about it. And so I think like the more you go into, but I, you know, they've sort of, they've left it kind of vague, but I sort of feel like, you know, Dr. Wu is one of those songs where it's like, mm. is, you know, is it, is Dr. Wu the person who has come between these people or it's like, is it what he's prescribing? And like, you can sort of go into it. It's like, you know, somebody who's like halfway crucified is, is pinned by one arm. Right. So it's like, that's a heroin reference. I feel like, but you know, that's when you start get. that's when you start getting into really sort of unpacking, like you can become, you know, you can become AJ Weberman about these things and, and like really start to dig into, uh, you know, what these, like what you think these things mean. But yeah, I feel like it's probably, it's, I feel like it's opiates. I feel like it's, it's heroin. I feel like it's, it's all of these things, but it's anything you can use to destroy yourself, right? You can drink scotch whiskey all day long and die behind the wheel all night long right. excuse me right um yeah, yeah the fine i when i first heard hey 19 i thought the fine colombian referred to weed and then later it's like mm, that's probably coke coke and tequila yeah what does david crosby say i feel like david crosby ruled on it at some point <laughs> he had a, he, he weighed in with his opinion but i forget where he where he came down uh, i mean yeah it's like i think right the fine colombian sort of could you know it's like obviously it's a country that you know makes a fine version of both but i you know i think what's the like <laughs> yeah um uh, you know uh, but yeah you know you have to yeah, yeah coffee too you know it could be you, you could never be fine it, could, it be, could be an espresso yeah yeah it could be juan juan valdez is is, is dr right. uh, you know coming down another reference i picked up i just want to say um you you're talking about like the danger of going too far into the research i i thought that you did a really good job of balancing the research with uh, keeping a sort of open-ended, this is just how I see it. This is not a definitive explanation of this song. You know, I, I thought you did that really well because there were times where I was like, oh, wait a minute. I, I see this a little differently. And I felt like a little bit, um, you know, combative, but you're the way you 
sort of say things is really graceful and, and Aikido like, and it didn't really give me any grasp to, to argue with you because you were very much like, you know, look, I, you, at one point you say something about uh, you may even think that Steely Dan are better lyricists than Bob Dylan. And, you know, I wouldn't argue that that's the case, but I know what I think. And you know, you, you, you do it really well. Um, so. Yeah, I, thank you. I, I, I mean, I, I wanted it to be because, you know, the thing that's fun about this band is that is is that vagueness and that room to interpret and that room to you know put your own thoughts into it and that like you know that they didn't give you all the information that you do have to fill that gap and i think that's the sort of you know magic thing that happens mentally is like that's how you really engage with it is that you're sort of filling in something that's left out of the story and i think what i you know what i really wanted this book to be is I, I didn't I didn't want it to be overly definitive. It's the it's the reason why there's not like any real. Uh, also because I'm not really a fiction writer, but there's not really attempts to be like this is the story. I'm going to write a you know a story about you know who the uh, the woolly man without a face was or who Doctor Wu was or something like that. You know because I think the minute you fill that in, the minute you make that definitive, it's someone else reading it is going to be like that's not the way I see it at all. You know, right. and I I think like what I love about Jones illustrations too, is that I think because they're sort of so set up, like, you know, she does a lot of work. A lot of her work has been in, before this has been, you know, in portraiture and because they're so set up, like people sort of sitting for a portrait, it's almost like we've taken people off the street and kind of styled them as these characters versus it being like, here is an illustration of what this person looks like. You know, mm. that you can then kind of quibble with because like ever since, you know, even when like when we're kids and like you start you read a book that has illustrations like and it doesn't the image doesn't match what you sort of pictured for the character that takes you out of it. Right. And I think I wanted this to sort of somehow be like, let's we're going to talk about all the possible interpretations and everything that sort of is seems to be alluded to here without kind of, you know, like you know killing the frog by you know dissecting the frog you know like too much like because it, it, it should stay there should be some you know kind of subjectivity to it i mean i fully believe that if you know donald fagan and i ever have a conversation about this book he's gonna be like this 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 way off because right. i think there's yeah it's like i'm sure there's some things that are absolutely wrong but i think also you know I don't know. I mean, the whole thing is like, I think there was a point where uh, Jessica, who's one of the editors of this book, the acquiring editor was like, one of her notes was like, you don't need to say, I think when you say these things, because everybody knows that it's, know. that it's yeah. you thinking it and you're just, it's, it's you kind of soft peddling it more than, more than is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So that uh, was uh, Along those lines, I would say my interpretation of any world that I'm welcome to is, uh, an expression of solidarity with a gay friend. Wow. That's interesting. I've got this that's thing another one inside I've never me. I've got to pl- find a place to hide me. I only know I can't, I must obey this feeling. I can't explain away. And then awkwardly, he goes to the park to watch the children playing. <laughs> right. I guess that would exactly, that tips it. You know, I mean. Could be a pedophile. Uh, from a Steely Dan perspective, you are always, you, you, there is pedophilia is always like right outside the door. So maybe that doesn't entirely work. But yeah, I mean, I think that that, you know, I find that song to be one of the most sincere Steely Dan songs. 
the one that I feel like there's a real, you know, sort of there's a real emotion in that. And I think that, you know, and that to me is that to me is Donald. Donald is the is the kid, the suburban kid looking at the or looking at or thinking about the big city and what that would mean and the life that is possible there. And obviously that is a journey that so many people, you know, have gone on. It's like sort of there is a place where I can be who I'm supposed to be and mm. it's not here. And it's always like, you know, that's, that's sort of, that's one of the, that's, that's one of the, I think, fundamental things about, you know, in sort of so much like anything writing by, by young people is like, where is the, you know, where is the place where I can go to be the, the person that I'm supposed to be? And so, yeah, that could be somebody who's gay and is trying to get to a place where they're able to live their truth or, you know, somebody who thinks that they're going to go to New York and hang out with Thelonious Monk because that's the, you know, they're a, mm. a bohemian hipster kind of person. And like, I think that's, you know, as somebody like I've made that journey in my life, I've had those things, those things that kind of become the city on the hill that you want to get to. And I think like, you know, that's like fundamental to the the, the human experience, especially if you are a kind of young, pretentious person, you know, and like I've certainly, I, I feel that I feel that very strongly. So yeah, yeah, I think that's, you know, I think that's something that, that, you know, but that, but that's, that's, what's great about it is that, you know, as I've been having these conversations of, with about Steely Dan, like I keep hearing these things, the ways that people saw it and I'm, these songs, and I'm like, Oh yeah, of course. Like that makes total sense. I'm having things kind of, you know, come up for me as we go through it. Are there songs that you wanted to write about, but got cut or, or just decided were too contentious or, or what you were saying didn't feel like it fit into the book somehow? I think there's, well, there were things that I wanted to get into that I, you know, toward the end of the process, I think there were things where I was like, I don't necessarily know how to do this one. So I'm going to put it aside because no one is going to know except me that it was going to be in here. Um, uh, there is a, uh, there, there's an electronic artist who goes by, uh, sex it's C E X. And he made a record that's entirely built out of Steely Dan samples, like just completely extruded and chopped up and kind of mixed around. And there's one like, there's a song that literally takes like the little thing, uh, from uh, Haitian divorce where he goes, the band was hot. So and like it's a loop of that song almost in you know like a sort of it's gonna rain kind of philip glass steve reich kind of way um but like with a beat to it and sort of there's a bunch of tracks like that and i had this whole thing that i wanted to write about you know the really sort of the far outer edge of steely dance sampling where people are very much kind of like trying like taking these beautiful toys and kind of like breaking them with a hammer and like trying to reconsemble you know trying to get inside of them by rebuilding them and i didn't really ever i, I couldn't like make it work it was going to be like one of the last chapters sort of the thing of like this is steely dan are always people are always going to be sort of reinterpreting these things and it's going to mm -hmm. be along the, the lines of what's happening contemporarily and so it was going to be there's gonna be a chapter about that album uh, which i think is called danimal i can look it up and sort of read it if you know if you want to wait you know people want to listen to me googling things i can look it up um but there's also one uh a friend of mine named ben lambert made a uh sort of uh you know what uh, like screwed and chopped music is you know like mm -hmm. slowed and throwed mm -hmm. it's like it's a, a sort of uh sub variant of like uh you know southern hip-hop centered around houston where they slow the track way down for people that are on lean 
you know, for people that are on like cough syrup, basically, you know, and like mm-hmm. kind of the, the sort of like opiated. And uh, he did this thing called Slowy Dan, which is like basically all of these songs kind of like dropped in sort of about like to like half speed. And that was really important to my thinking about the like it really allowed me to kind of listen to the parts in a different way. And so I was going to write about that in the context of this too. And so uh, Ben is thanked in the the acknowledgements in the book, but like the part that he's responsible for is actually not in there. Right. Um, that's a really long answer. But yeah, basically there were things, you know, I, I think we, there were probably things that Joan would have been into painting that I was like, I kind of don't have anything for this. Like, right. I don't know if I have a thought about monkey in your soul. Um, right. So don't what, paint a monkey. What about, I, I was surprised there wasn't a, a chapter on only a fool would say that. Well, I mean, that was one. Yeah. Because there's all this like sort of speculation that that's about John Lennon. You've heard this, I, mean, I assume yeah, that yeah. it's about sort of seeing like uh, it's it's like that that's the story of supposedly that that's the story of like the protagonist is a working class guy who comes home from a long day at work and sees John Lennon being like, imagine no possessions. And it's right. like, well, fuck you. Easy for you to say. Yeah. Um, I guess it like because some of them were like if it, certain ones we left out because they didn't necessarily have like they didn't suggest like a really strong visual image for like a character. Cause mm-hmm. the one character the, the most important character that's kind of not in this book or is everywhere in this book is the sort of narrative eye. Cause there's always like an eye seeing the gaucho or seeing, you know, sort of interacting with one of these people, you know, and sometimes there, you know, sometimes it's the protagonist, but it's like, you know, the fella in the white tuxedo, is somebody that the narrator sees on the street in New York or in LA, depending on how you look at that song. But then there's who's, who's the narrator, right? Cause that's, and the narrator is Mr. partly Steely it's Donald Dan. and Walter. It's Mr. Steely Dan. There's yeah. always this other character. And I kind of liked that, that like, you know, it's, it's like the, you know, uh, Steve Malkmus from pavement said that songwriters who don't write in the first person are, you know, there's a coldness, you know, like a, they're, they're like phantoms. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, there's, there's the phantom protagonist of every Steely Dan song. And sometimes I think those are, you know, I think initially like Joan has talked about this in interviews. I think that her, she wanted to paint like all of those characters as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a sort of, that's getting into like, you know, who even is that guy? And so I think we, you know, we needed to, to pare it down from that perspective, but like, I really like only people would say that I it's, it's, it's weird that it's not in there from that perspective i guess because it's a good steely dance and it does feel it feels um uh sort of spooky in some ways everybody on the street has murder in his eyes you feel no pain and you're younger than you realize it makes me wonder if mark david chapman was a steely dan fan i mean that's what they said they've talked about uh you know in uh sort of around like royal scam time and talking about what's the uh the uh uh don't take me alive mm. they, they were sort of they had identified something you know it's 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 weird right because we're we've now you know like sadly as a country accepted a reality in which a, you know there's a mass shooting every single day basically but at the time they were sort of noticing like Huh, there are seem to be a lot of instances of stuff like this happening and they connected it in their minds to like all of the weird sort of paranoid letters that they would get from right. steely dan fans like they were so there was they, they had identified something about like you know the kind of like what's the will self thing like the quantity theory of insanity 
you know mm. how there's sort of like there's just there's a there's an amount of insanity in the world that just is kind of you know it, like is kind of shared among us as a consciousness and they were seeing this kind of rising sense that the world was going crazier and, and like kind of that there were all these data points kind of contributing to that and yeah i think that's i, I didn't i've never thought about like yeah yeah the people on the street with murder in their eyes but it's like it, i think that ties in directly to like you know, a song like Don't Take Me Alive was about a hostage situation and a guy holed up with dynamite and guns waiting for the cops to come and get him, who I think kind of wants the cops to come and get him. Right. So like when I talk about that in the book, I talk about Arthur Bremer's autobiography, which is one of the the great just sick works of American literature. And one of the, he's sort of he's a real person, but like that's he's one of the like, you know, strangest and most American fucked up protagonists, I feel which is it's just a book about him driving around it's like he's going to it, all, it culminates in him it, like shooting george wallace like that was the that was what right. he did he was going to try to right. kill nixon and then he changed his mind and killed <clears throat> shot wallace and paralyzed wallace um so like that's the story of that and it, you know it, but it's the book is him kind of driving around going to movies and killing time and <laughs> just doing like waiting for his you know for his big moment while thinking about what's going to happen when he is a famous presidential assassin right. and it feels very much like that is a, it's a i you know it's a it's a quintessentially american story in its own really dark way and wasn't there something about him thinking well maybe i should just go to hollywood and write screenplays <laughs> yeah it was like one i'm gonna do one of the it's like you know i'm gonna do one of these i'm going to i'm going to assassinate a presidential candidate or a sitting president like depend like depending i'm gonna do that or maybe i should just go out to you know yes i will go be a be a, a screenwriter because there was something about you know that feeling like i'm meant to be something special and i don't know what it is but i'm going to i will do something i will i could do something positive or i could do something incredibly negative and there's a you know that's like because i think like one of the you know one of the great steely dan themes is is self-delusion and is the, mm. is the feeling that you know i think that's always i think that's that's always present there but he's you know and like like you know he becomes almost he's he's like deacon blues who's like the minute i start playing the saxophone it's it's over for you like i'm gonna be i will like all, the only thing that separates me from john coltrane is that i have yet to take up the saxophone and like once that once that happens yeah. forget it i'll play just what i feel exactly yeah I'll as, as and if... the ladies will just fall all over me and like, <laughs> yes i will crawl i will make love to these women and all of that and it's this you know this daydream of what's going to happen like you know it's it's like talking to somebody who's like never finished a short story who's like when my novel is gonna like yeah. i am basically don delillo in all respects except i haven't written any books <laughs> except, yet except for that it's a minor detail yeah minor is <laughs> aside from that i'm it's i'm basically there so speaking of of delusion and self-awareness and all that, there that sort of relates to two questions I had. One of which is, and I think I know the answer to it, but but it's so ballsy as a musician to say, we want the best musicians in the world to come and play with us. Right? So, like clearly they're great songwriters, they're brilliant guys, they're, you know, it, it, superlatives uh out the wazoo but how do how do they compare how does walter becker compare to um uh larry larry carlton as a guitarist larry carlton you know or, um, or how does donald fagan compare as a keyboardist you know with with the kind of session musician yeah. they would get 
Well, I mean, first of all, like one of the things that I, I love about them is the sort of weirdness of how they became a band in the first place, right? That they never really envisioned being the artists singing these songs until they basically had to, when it was clear that like no one else was going to record them. And so they had to kind of earn their, you know, their keep at ABC records one way or another as staff songwriters. So they had no choice but to put together a band. And so that's how that happens. And like, that from the beginning, they are writing songs that are outside of Donald's vocal register, like the mm -hmm. things that they can't really do. And so they never, it, you know, because they didn't start out, like if you start a band, you know, you're limited by like, okay, I'm going to, our band is going to play to the level that we can play at. But if you never conceive of it, if you don't come into it thinking that this is something for you to play, then sky's the limit. You can write whatever you want. Like you can right. write any kind of, you can, you know, you're, it's the, the only limit is is what you can conceive of. And so that, you know, in the beginning, that's why they have David Palmer, because he's more of a classic lead singer type, but also because he's a sort of more like he has a bigger range and he can sing things that Donald can't sing. And so Donald is constantly like that, you know, they like is constantly writing stuff that's outside of his range. But then, yeah. And then at some point they just start bringing in the you know the the ringers and like that shifts the you know the sort of the sound of steely dan but i think donald is an incredible singer if, at the, that said i think he's an incredibly emotive singer i think if you listen to something like your gold teeth too you know that's like you could imagine maybe sinatra doing a better job with that mm -hmm. than he did but like there's very few people and a lot of the best guitar solos on Steely Dan records are Walters, even though he's famous for saying it wouldn't bother me if I never played on my own record, mm. you know? So I find him, I think he's like, he's real. I think he's really good. And I think there's something really, I wish, you know, there was more of it, but like at the same time, I love the idea that they were like, we're, we're not going to be limited by what we can personally do. We're yeah. going to let go of this notion of, of what a rock band should be able to do, which is, you know, it's very much like, you know, it's a, it's a constraint that was placed on rock music. And a lot of the best rock music is, was made by session musicians up to a certain point. And it's only once you get to, you know, there's like periodically, like you'll have these kind of, you know, purist kind of reformation sort of make that you know uncool to do but yeah i think they were kind of you know i think they were very much like you know i, I think they were it wasn't like oh these guys aren't talented and so they need to sort of surround themselves with people yeah. who know how to do it like i think because i think actually like you know for all of his protestations like donald is the perfect guy to sing these songs even when he's kind of technically can't do it and i i love becker as a guitarist and soloist mm. yeah yeah it's it's I mean, they're so full of contradictions, you know, because they seem kind of egotistical and, you know, their shades and refusal to tour and the, their relationship with the press and all that. They're very ironic and, you know, holier than thou in some way. And yet it takes a lot of humility to invite the best in the world to come in and, you know, play with you in a studio. Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, those are guys who could say, no, dude, you're wrong. You know, that that's not the way this should sound, which leads to my next question, which is, as far as I know, or could glean from the book, they never had anyone like a Daniel Lanois or a Rick Rubin or some kind of visionary collaborator who came in to kind of potentiate what they were doing or give it an, another kind of glean. They themselves, I guess, produced everything 
in the on the you know level of vision and and what they wanted to hear yeah i mean look they had they had gary katz who is often credited as the producer who is credited as the producer on a lot of this the early on the early stuff uh who i think was there to keep other people away from the process first and foremost like it was sort of like <laughs> we'll put our guy in that chair so that we can actually run it like drive right. it from the back seat and like gary was the guy who they, they when they wanted to get rid of the guitarist on a session or whatever gary was the guy they'd be like get, can you go tell you know larry's done today like that was sort of that was that was katz's role um, but they did have Roger Nichols, Roger, the immortal Nichols, who was their engineer, who I think is probably mm. the most like the, the you know, artistically, the, the sort of, you know, most important person in the mix, aside from Donald and Walter, because he's he's the guy who's figuring out how to make these things happen. He's the guy who builds Wendell, which is the sampling computer, right. the incredibly hard to use sampling computer that they basically <laughs> brought, you know, like long before the age of Pro Tools and the age of drum loops and all of that it was basically they were basically doing sampled drum loops because they wanted the precision of like a disco track, like a really good, you know, just like boom, 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 better than a human drummer could do it. And like Nichols was the one who knew how to do that. And so he was sort of the he was he was the guy, I think, who, you know, it's I think it's but yeah, primarily it's which is now it's like now we think of you know it's like 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 bjork or somebody who's like sort of an artist and also a producer and production mm -hmm. and music making are so kind of blurred in the way that things work now and so there are so many you know or any like there's a million examples of people like that you know sort of working today as music has become more electronic and artists have more kind of access to the machinery of production and kind of, you know, and then that's, you know, you, as you come up, you are both, you know, a lot of people, you are a, like an engineer and a producer and an artist. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of what they were doing because they knew what they wanted, even if they couldn't realize it themselves. And they also wanted ideas from the people that they brought in. Like that was the, you know, that they didn't really coach people beforehand. They were like, what do you got for this? Right. And they would run through people sometimes until they had somebody who's sort of like, whose answer to like, what do you got for this was better than they could have conceived of, you know, yeah. and that's how you get to all those, you know, all those different versions of the guitar solo on peg. And then, you know, the eighth guy is the charm after like everybody else like tries and fails to do it. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. I, I, uh, do you ever, do you know who Rick, um, Beato is? Yes. Yes. He he's a friend All of right. mine. And you mentioned earlier um sort of listening to to different tracks in isolation. I, I think in, in reference to the guy who slowed mm -hmm. everything down for the cough syrup. Yeah. Uh, Rick Rick Beato does great unpacking of Kid Charlemagne. And he's got the individual tracks. So he'll play just the bass for a while, or he'll play just the Larry Carlton solo. And it's just it gives me such a great appreciation for the music. It's called what makes this song great. Uh, and, every... and he's playing like isolated, like just the baseline, just, yeah, he's yeah, got I... somehow he's got some contact at, at studios or something who sends him. I don't even know what it's called, but it, he can stems is what it's stems. called. That's exactly it. So he's got this like remixing and dance music. It's called stems. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll play and he'll, and he'll also play along with it. He's a multi-instrumentalist, so he can play, you know, the guitar part and you can see the, the fingering and everything. And yeah. he also interviewed, he's a huge Steely Dan fan. He interviewed Larry Carlton. He interviewed Chuck Rainey was just a couple days ago. 
bass player. Oh yeah, no, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um Bernard Purdy. Is that his name? The 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 drummer, right? Yeah, Bernard, yeah. The, um yeah, you just hired the hit maker. Bernard Purdy, exactly. <laughs> That's right. He put the sign next to the drums. That's so funny. He had his um, own billboard in the studio. You just hired the hitmaker. You it, it, it actually what I supposedly according to Donald says you you've done it. You hired the hitmaker. <laughs> and yeah, Bernard was the one who sort of of all the you know the legendary sort of like perfectionism of Steely Dan making people do a million takes. Like Bernard was one of the few people who would almost always nail it on like one or two and be like putting his coat on, like yeah. ready to go sign the slip and kind of be off and like. They'd be like, actually, these guys are still just warming up. Like, yeah. you got to keep doing it, you know, because he would just nail it every time. They didn't have to make Bernard jump through many hoops. He kind of yeah. got it immediately. He knew. Yeah. Yeah. But what, yeah. Awesome. So I love that shit, though, being able to listen to all those, like, get, you know, to sort of crawl inside of it. Like, I, there was a, a, I once I was at Sony and they demonstrated sort of what, you know, their kind of uh, spatial audio technology, which is basically, it's like, you know, you have like, like you have, if you have 5.1 in your house or something like that, this was like 32 speakers all over a room, the size of the room that I'm in mm -hmm. and stuff would be in front of you and behind you. And it was all mixed. And I, I listened to Sicko Mode by Travis Scott and it was the most unearthly experience but it was like oh i can really sort of i can reach out and sort of feel that thing over there i really would like i would like to crawl inside of like a giant art installation of some kind and just listen to pieces mm. of peg and kind oh. of be able to kind of mix it up and down and sort you know go in there and like that's my favorite stuff in the classic albums documentaries when they're just like playing little bits of it like i i you know i never get tired of yeah. that kind of thing yeah, I'll I'll send you a link to the Kid Charlemagne uh, episode. I love that. Yeah. Particularly, it's it's amazing. And I did I talked to Joel, your publicist at uh, mm -hmm. at uh, University of Texas, uh, and I I had him. I got Rick's address, and I had him send uh, a book to Rick. I'm sure Rick would uh, would really love the book and and oh, amazing mention it shout out to show. joel pinkney at ut yeah uh, who's who's done who's like moved heaven and earth uh, for this book it's really it's been really cool you, you uh, know but yeah I, i'd love talking about that i think uh it, it's interesting how technological development shapes um the existence of of artists um I, i'm not sure how to articulate this but it occurred to me a way you're describing that room that the time in my life when I paid the most attention to music uh, was late 70s, high school, early 80s, college. Now, part of that's biographical. Part of it's just that you're in an age where you got a lot of free time, you're smoking a lot of weed, you're hanging out with your friends, and you're listening to your favorite music. And I'm sure everybody in that age group sort of goes through that. <clears throat> but I think that in my case, and, and maybe yours, there was also a technological thing where, you know, when I was in high school, that was when you would go and buy a really good receiver and a really mm. good amplifier. And you'd go to the store and you'd listen to lots of different speakers. And, you know, they, they had a special room at the stereo store with the speaker room where you'd go in there and you'd say, you know, put on Asia. I want to hear Asia on these speakers and then those speakers and then those speakers and get a sense for that. Like I've got shitty little Bluetooth speakers now, you know, yeah. they're, they're super you, convenient, right. but they sound like shit. They don't even do stereo separation. I don't think what, 
Steely Dan now, you know, the people like Pete Townsend complaining about the technology and the, you know, the MP3 destroys the, the, the audio and all this. I kind of feel like Steely Dan existed at just the right moment in terms of the development of technology. Well, right. I mean, like, what's the point of, you know, because in addition to all of the sort of putting the, the players through all of these contortions and all of these millions of takes and everything, like they would then mix for months. And like you hear stories about Donald mixing Gaucho and just being like, you know, just like hunched over the console, just a broken man, just mixing and mixing and mixing and trying to get it right and all of that. And that's so that it will sound great in a form that, you know, at that time probably would have been vinyl so that like you're listening to it. Yeah. With shed on separation and with like, you are probably, it's like it is coming out of speakers and it's moving the air and you're going to be able to hear all of these subtleties in it. And so he, you know, he knows that. And nowadays, like not that the mixing process, like I'm sure, you know, it's, it's as, as, you know, most, many people are probably as in, involved and that as obsessive about it, but it is, it's going to get compressed down to this little tiny sort of nub of, of what it is. And like, you can become like a complaining old guy about it. And I sort of am a little bit, you know, but like, <laughs> you know, like, like Rick Rubin is fucking right that like whatever your earbud is doing, like that's not bass. It's tricking you into thinking there is bass. It is making you taste bass in the way that like a LaCroix tastes like lime or something, but it's not right. really, there's not, you're not actually tasting it. Or like, you know, I mean, like Neil Young is right. You know, like I did this Neil Young story. I interviewed Neil Young for the LA Times and I signed up for that, you know, for the Amazon music thing where you can hear things in like hi-fi audio that meets like Neil Young's like impossibly high standard of that. And it's really better. It's actually better. Mm -hmm. And there was a month where that was all I could talk about was like, yes, you think that you've heard Cowgirl in the Sand, but you have not. Like that's, mm -hmm. you absolutely have not. Like I tried like, you know, ease of use is for is like a real thing and like i you know sort of i did a lot of the when i had to check things and like you know go in and listen to stuff and figure stuff out like a lot of that was spotify and a lot of it was earbuds and you know we have bluetooth speakers in every room of the house that we use and all that but i also tried to you know i like it's yeah like i i had this is this is right here and like mm. i went and listened to it like and i got stuff out of it in the same way that I got stuff out of listening to Slowy Dan, listening to it sort of chopped and screwed was a, like opened it up for me. And I look like could hear like, oh, that's what this I can hear this part coming in. Like there's just something different that is happening when, you know, but there's something different that's happening. Even if you're listening to CDs like that's I mean, you listen to CDs lately. CDs sound incredible compared to like what mm. we're doing here with like mm. these, you know, little things that we put in our ears, you know, the, with the streaming experience and like. You know, the streaming thing is so important because it's like the reason there's a Steely Dan revival and the reason there's a Yacht Rock revival and all of that is that you can instantly kind of find this stuff and find out about it. And like, you know, playlists are easy to circulate and all of that. And there's so much that's good and democratizing and kind of, you know, blows open historicism and all of that and kind of lets, you know, young makes things accessible to young people in a way that they you know really weren't when, you know, when I was young in that same way. But you know, sonically, it's like, you know, forget it. Like there is like, there's, you're just not actually, you think that you're eating the meal and you're not eating the meal. You're not getting it. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like the David Lynch thing about like, you know, like just these, like, you know, are you really watching a movie if you're watching it on a fucking phone? He's like, get the fuck out of here. Like, it's just, you know, he's, there's not even a question that that's the case. Yeah. Well, old men have a lot to complain about. 
I mean, you know, that's true. <laughs> I, I've sort of made a career of it and uh, I yep. intend to continue. So uh, listen, man, you, you have done something very difficult and very precious, which is you've helped me love and appreciate something that I already loved and appreciated. And you've deepened that. And uh, I can't thank you enough for that. I think that's, I mean, I don't know what motivates people to write books or write songs or whatever, but certainly bringing deeper understanding and pleasure into their audience's lives has to be a major motivation. And you've definitely done it. And um, I, I'll recommend this book and, and spread the word as much as I can to get it into people's hands. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That's really, you know, I'm not so cynical a Steely Dan fan that I, I'm not uh, moved to hear that. And yeah, that's all that's, you know, all we want to do is it's, a you know, ultimately it's a celebration of, of this band that's brought us, brought so much joy and mystery and strangeness into both my life and Joan's life. And so, you know, on, on behalf of, of her, uh, I thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alex Papadimus. Uh, the book is Quantum Criminals. Come check me out at chrisryan.substack.com. And if you are a customer of Amazon, please remember to take some of that money from Jeff. Jeff, help him out. He's got too much money. Send it my way instead. Go to thatchrisryan.com. Click on that Amazon affiliate link and use that sucker till it wears out. Thank you so much. I will be back with you shortly. Got some really good conversations in the can coming your way soon. And uh, hey, maybe see you in Montana in August. Check it out. Bye. Here's Carsey Blanton, as always, reminding you of your mortality. Thank you, Carsey. He said, Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much you let it out to play your heart is in a bird cage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation running from a
what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.